Hey, Joseph. Hey, Crystal. Do you want to do something that's a little more meta than usual and talk about studying the Bible? Rather than studying it? Yes. Can we have a guest? Yes. Can it be Dr. Scott Powell? Yes. Awesome. Welcome to A Word from Our Outpost with Joseph and Crystal Gruber, a podcast for Catholic disciples who are wrestling to be missionary-minded in their normal, everyday lives. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Direct, O Lord, our actions by thy holy inspiration, and carry them on by thy gracious assistance, that every word and work of ours may begin in thee, and by thee be happily ended. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Hello, Joseph. Hello, Crystal. Hello, Dr. Scott Powell. Hello. Welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm really honored to be here. We're excited to have you. A couple of fun facts about Dr. Scott Powell is Uh that Joseph and I have really random connections. Speaking of missionary discipleship, both Joseph and I have been affected and become missionary disciples because of, not because of Dr. Scott directly, but because of people he has reached and his wife has reached are reasons why Joseph and I became missionaries. So that's kind of fun. That's awesome. Praise God for that. Praise the Lord. Spiritual great, great grandfather. (laughs) (laughs) But definitely not old enough to be here. Oh, thank you for saying that. Um, Also, I'm wearing a cardigan and going pretty gray right now. (laughs) It looks old man at the moment. I think this year is making everybody feel old. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, probably. And you and your wife, I think my favorite thing that you guys have done is together you've started Camp Waitiwa, um, and then you've also done a lot of studying and learning on your own, which has led you to be teaching other people. <laughs> well, it's uh, I love I love teaching, and actually, it's it's funny you um, the fact that you introduced me sort of how you did with the um, people. Well, l- l- let me say this, and I. I um, I always like to um, think of myself, I don't, I do speaking sometimes and I give talks and I do stuff like that, but I am always so much more comfortable and so much more at home um, in a teaching capacity. I like the classroom and I like, you know, that, those aspects of things. And I've, I've always thought about the, what the mark I think of a really good teacher and there's plenty of great speakers who are also good teachers, but I do think that there can be a distinction. I think the mark of a really, really great teacher is that they have the ability to make themselves obsolete. And that's what every great teacher is supposed to be, a great, a great speaker. And again, I know we both know, we all know a lot of great speakers who are also great teachers. But, but sometimes, you know, there's this idea of the personality cult and you just want to keep listening to whatever that person has to say because they're awesome and they're so powerful and you feel so moved by them. But the beauty of a teacher is you should be able to convey something that is reproducible, that people can take what you have said or what you've conveyed to them because ideally you've had it taught to you and then they can go. And I always tell people when I give talks, I hope you forget my name at the end of this, but you remember the stuff and then you go and share it and you go teach it. So I love that our major connection with each other is actually not through me at all, but it's through just people that we've, I've been with and walked with and shared life with. So I'm, I'm honored by that. That's fun. And, you know, it's interesting, Scott, as you're saying that, I, I a very strong memory is coming to my mind. Um, so in this past winter, um, our daughter was in the hospital, long story, but I was driving more than usual. And so I was listening to more podcasts than usual. Uh-oh. And I happened to listen to the podcast that you have with Father, Father Peter Musset. And it was it was about, there was something that you guys were talking about, about Adam and Eve in the garden. And I don't remember the context or the week or anything else. It didn't end well. 
<laughs> well, what, well, keep well, keep, reading, keep, is- reading, keep reading, keep reading, keep reading, keep reading, keep reading for a long, long time. But the the memory that's actually coming to my mind is I had a conversation with a friend of mine, and she said this idea. I heard this recently, and I don't remember where, but it was about Adam and Eve, and we started talking about it. I was like, that was in the Lanky Guys podcast. Because I heard it. And so she, we had both had this similar, but it, it was funny because just as you're saying, she didn't remember where she heard it. I think she listens to a lot of content, but I remembered because yeah, yeah. I hadn't been listening to very much content and I had happened to recently listen to it. Um, so I think that I, you're doing that well in your podcast. I really do long for that. I mean, part of what we say on our podcast, and, and I, I say this, I'm not trying to be false humility guy or anything. I mean, I, I say it because I actually know myself well enough. And I've been a Catholic a long, long enough to, to see how easy it is for folks to kind of crash and burn. I, I know my own weaknesses. I know how much I like accolades from people. I know how much, you know, I like applause when I give a talk somewhere. And so um, I also know that it's what God wants me to do. And I, and I love it. There's something that actually makes me really happy when somebody says, I don't know where I heard this, but here's the content. Because again, so many people are like, I, I don't remember exactly what I heard, but I remember that person who said it and they were cool and they were really good looking and they were dynamic, but I don't know if I could tell you what they said. And that all of a sudden becomes something that can be kind of dangerous and dangerous for people like me who kind of have a big head. <laughs> Anatomically speaking, it looks pretty proportionate. Well, on the, on the iPhone, it's bigger than it. The yeah. iPhone has 10 pounds to the head. There you go. <laughs> Incredible. <laughs> So we, speaking of teaching, wanted to talk with you about studying the Bible. Yeah. Because you do that in various capacities, right? You're you're a teacher, you're a podcaster. According to your podcast, you meet in a small group with some of the focus missionaries. I don't know if that's going on currently, but I know that's something you've done. just happened a couple hours ago. Oh, wow. Uh, You know what we were talking about? We were talking about 1 Corinthians and we were talking about personality cults, which uh, is why it was fresh on my head, on my mind. Yeah. That, that would that would add up, uh, and then your own personal study. Um, so th- there there are many different ways in which uh, you share your study of scripture with other people, and yeah. so we we wanted to talk to you about those different modes and yeah. and even to take a step back and say like how what is your fundamental disposition towards scripture? What is my fundamental disposition towards scripture? What a great question. Thank um, you. I to, to answer that, I think I have to um, we have to take a step back, or at least I, I do, just to even wrap my head around that. Um, I was raised I was raised Catholic, um, but I like a lot of us didn't really understand totally what I was doing. And one of the things that I really remember, because it, when I was in high school, I got really involved with uh, with an evangelical fellowship, and I, I credit them for so much of of my relationship with Jesus, and I'm so grateful for that. But one of the things I always sort of thought, whether it was conscious or, or subconscious growing up, was that the Bible, and part of this was because of family dynamics and different stuff, that the Bible was something that the Protestants were really into. And they were really good at it, and they could quote chapter and verse. But we Catholics didn't really need it because we had the liturgy and we had the Mass. And so I know it was there, and it kind of sat on our shelf. And I know we, you know, we, it was present at Mass, but it wasn't as big of a deal because I didn't know many Catholics who knew it or seemed to know it as well as my Protestant friends and family. And it's this misconception I think a whole lot of Catholics have. And that is fundamentally what needed to change for me. And one of the things I began to discover was that 
the scriptures, it, it's not something that the Catholics don't need as much because we have all the other stuff. We have the sacraments and liturgical life and everything else. I mean, it, it's when we go to mass, um, what a lot of folks didn't realize, and I didn't realize this for a long time, when we stand up at the beginning of mass, when father processes in, we're not just standing up for father, we're standing up for the procession of the word of God made written to be brought up to the altar. And in the course of the mass, there's really only two things that are placed and reverenced on the altar at the mass. And it's the word of God made written in the scriptures. And then what will become the word of God made flesh in the Eucharist. Those are the two things put on the altar and reverenced, which should automatically begin to tell us something about the church's disposition toward the scriptures. And so I, I began to, to glean some of this stuff, but it was really, to be honest with you, it was when I was a freshman in college and uh, I was at this little liberal arts college and I was taking my required religion class because it was a religious school and I was required to take it. And I, uh, the professor was um, talking about the New Testament, which, you know, I had the enough knowledge from growing up Catholic, going to mass one, you know, for the most part. Um, but he was saying all of these things. And, and I, it's funny because I, looking back, I did then and I still do now disagree with most of the conclusions this professor made. And I think his mind was very far from the mind and the heart of the church. I'll just put it that way. But I remember him unpacking for us some of the, the political and economic and social implications of what was going on in the gospel and who this Barabbas character who was, you know, supposed to be crucified alongside with Jesus and, and what were the people in the crowd yelling and who were these revolutionaries and what were these political movements and I, that was actually in this class that, again, I think is very far from the heart and the mind of the church. It was somebody saying, hey, there is an entire world with politics and social structure and language and idioms and economics and everything else behind these things that I had taken for granted for my entire life. And I, all of a sudden, in that context, began to realize, whoa, these are real people. J Jesus, and again, I didn't think this consciously at the time, but looking back, it was when God began to show me how important it is that he became incarnate in the particulars, in a particular people with particular religious beliefs and political beliefs, in a particular geography, in a particular part of the world, in a particular set of years. God cares about the particulars and the specifics of our life. And when I started to think about, wow, Jesus probably spoke with, a, with an accent or a dialect and he had friends and these relationships and social stuff. And I, it, it sounds so simplistic, even as, as I'm saying it out loud, but the thought that there's an entire world behind what we're seeing in the Bible, that to kind of begin to enter into that, it brings everything else to life. And so I've, I've then later on, I kind of began to understand my own Catholic faith and put the Catholic tradition together with this understanding and what I've fallen in love with and what I love to teach more than anything, and this is at the podcast, it's in the classes I teach, I love unpacking the context, the world around the Bible. Um, because again, the scriptures aren't handed to us in a void. They're giving and they're written by specific, this is the beauty of the church's understanding of what it means that the Bibles are inspired by God and also without error. That God uses human authors with all of the stuff of humanity and blesses and uh has written what he wants to be written by those human authors and no more, bringing to bear their personalities and their language and their, you know, dialect and their their politics and their social structure and everything else that God cares that much about the individual and the particulars of our lives. 
And that's kind of what's reflected there, as opposed to being this abstract, far away, fairy tale, kind of weird mythological like book that I didn't understand what it had to do with anything. All of a sudden, I began to see there's a whole world that Jesus chose to enter into. And if I really want to understand him, it really helps to understand his world. I don't know if that answers the question or not. So something that's really interesting to me, Scott, in this answer is Joseph and I were talking earlier today about how there's these two pieces to studying the Bible. There's this piece of the intellectual understanding, which is very much what you're talking about, right? What What is going on here? What's the context? All these pieces and parts, which which can, can be a very academic um, exercise. But the yeah. way that you just talked about it as those particulars teach us something about the particulars of, of God caring also for me right. is that other piece of the puzzle that Joseph and I talk about is how is what we're studying transforming our life? But the way that you just talked about it, you just they you didn't talk about them like two separate things. <laughs> you just right. like smashed them together. Well, the <laughs> other kind of smashing that happened that I thought was remarkable is, you know, the word of God is this that which is reverenced on the altar. It's also the thing that's dirty and re- something that we're wrestling with and something that we're trying to wrap our minds around and something that we're poking at and prodding. And it's both of those things. It's both the thing that we put upon the altar as an object of reverence. Um, and it's also this thing that, you know, it, it, it still smells of, of the land that produced it. And, and this is something that's interesting to me because I think the way that you study the Bible, Joseph, with men is you draw, and I don't, I don't know that you use this language, but there's this distinction between like doubt and disbelief, right? Mm. And, and when we're okay with, with wrestling, with having some doubts that we get to like poke and prod and that's okay. It's different than saying, I think this is wrong or I don't believe in this, but to be able to say, we're, we're trying to figure this out and this doesn't make sense to me and it's okay to say that. Oh, and that's actually the beginning of real studying, I've found. Yes. Um, oh, my gosh. There's so much in, in what you both just said uh, that I want to comment on. First of all, Joseph, the, the thing you said about the um, – man, how did you just say it? The, the idea of it's, it's kind of dirty and it's, it's, it's gritty and real, but it's also reverenced. I mean, it's funny as you say it that way. If you're imagining the scriptures in that context on the altar, I mean, what's right above the altar? Usually a crucifix. What's right. that? Well, it's the body of Christ, dirtied and gritty and bloody and real, that we are reverencing and about to receive. So the, the analogy here is what the church is constantly trying to point us to, that these are not separate from each other. This is different manifestations, incarnations of, of who God is, which is so beautiful. Um, and then the other thing, oh man, what did you just say, Crystal? You said something really, really, really beautiful that I wanted to... Um, that Give me back studying. Oh, studying oh, and being able to yeah, poke. This, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, th- this is, um, mm, oh, there's so much, you guys, I want to say. <laughs> when I'm, I'm, I'm in the process of teaching uh, a class that I teach every, every two semesters on uh, the New Testament right now. And one of the things that I just finished sort of trying to unpack for my students is, because I, I teach it in a religious context. We're at the, our Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought. It's the, the um, organization that I run here in Boulder, and we're connected to our Catholic campus ministry. But I'm also affiliated with the University of Colorado, which is a big secular university. And so while I'm teaching in a religious context, I've tried very hard to make these classes something that are palatable 
for a big secular university who actually receives my classes as transfer credits. But that took a lot of work to do because I had to prove to see you, look, I'm actually taking this in an academic sense serious as well, which is this, uh, my constant question of how do I do this as a believer, but also in an academic format. And one of the things that I always try to show to my students that has sort of happened over the years of biblical studies, and maybe we can get to a bigger point on this in just a second, but there, um, emerged in biblical studies around the time of the Enlightenment. Um, yeah, it was really around the time of the Enlightenment that there was a change in the way that we read the Bible. So for the most part, uh, in the early days of Christianity, we had commentaries on Scripture. And, you know, if you go into any seminary library or a parish library or something, you find all the ancient, the oldest books giving commentary on Scripture. The vast majority of them are homilies given by, you know, St. John Chrysostom or St. Augustine or St. Jerome. But I mean, the, what's the context? The context is liturgical. The context is from the life of the church. And then uh, there came a time again around the time of the Enlightenment that all that began to shift. And the study of scripture moves from the monastic life, from the parish life, from a liturgical life into purely academia, strictly academia. And then something becomes lost because we, not that it's bad to study the scriptures academically, I think it's good, I mean, it's part of my job, but to do it devoid of the spiritual life, devoid of the liturgy, and completely divorced from that, that becomes really problematic. And what enters into biblical studies around that time in history is what's called the hermeneutic of suspicion. And for a whole lot of other reasons, and you know, some of which led to the Protestant revolt of corruption in the church and distrust of bishops and popes and everything else, People began to say, well, if we can't trust Christians with these moral issues and we can't trust the bishops or the pope with that stuff, maybe we shouldn't trust the Bible either. And so the way the Bible began to be studied at that point was from a hermeneutic of suspicion. Basically, we really can't trust anything that's in this book until it's proven to us, which can't really prove miracles. You can't prove the resurrection because these are matters of faith that are, are experiential in our lives, but not in a way you can, you can manipulate under a microscope. And so the reason I'm talking about all this, Crystal, is because your question of the disposition of the church uh, as opposed to the disposition of many people in acad academia, I'm not going to put everybody in a, in a uh, pigeonhole, but the church says, no, question, explore, prod, wrestle. We ought, you have to do that if you want to take it seriously. But there's a difference between a hermeneutic or a disposition that says, yeah, I don't buy any of this. Prove it to me. And a disposition that says, no, I really want to believe what the church says, but I struggle with this, or I'm not clear on that, or I don't know if I understand this. That's a very different point of view. St. Augustine, who was one of the greatest spiritual minds of, of all of Christendom, he said, you know, oftentimes I'll come across something in the scriptures that I don't understand, and it doesn't make any sense. And the modern kind of academic mindset says, well, then it's wrong, or it's mistaken, or there's an error, or, you know, somebody blew it, or some, you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. And St. Augustine said, no, when I find something that doesn't make sense in the scriptures, there's one of three options. Option number one, um, maybe I got a bum copy. Right? <laughs> maybe I got a bad Bible, and it's missing a couple pages that would make everything make more sense. Amazon didn't print it right. Option number two, maybe I have a bad translation, because the scriptures were written in Hebrew and Greek initially, and maybe there's something lost in the translation into other languages. And there's a nuance that I'm just not quite getting. Or option number three, you know what? Maybe there's something in the workings of God that I just don't understand yet. And I love that approach to scripture because 
Augustine doesn't wash it away and say, no, there's no problems. Everything's fine. I'll just blindly assume that all of it's true and I'll blindly follow it. He says, no, I don't get it. I want to get it though. And that's the difference. It's saying, I want to understand as opposed to, I want to disprove. And when we come from the point of view, and you know what? God can use that too. God can use the people who say, I want to disprove it. I want to tear it all apart. And he can show himself in that way too, because God can do whatever he wants to. But the proper disposition of a Catholic theologian is supposed to be, no, I'm not going to dismiss all of these difficulties or challenges or seeming contradictions. I'm going to say, where is the truth? How can I dig deeper? How can I understand more? How can I understand those languages and that, that cultural reality of the time to get myself in the heart and the mind and the shoes of the original authors and really see what God is saying? But when we don't go to that point, we're really not going to get very deep or far into the spiritual life or into the studies of Scripture when we don't allow ourselves to wrestle a little bit. I love that. And maybe just for the last part of our conversation, maybe we could talk a little bit practically speaking, because like practically speaking as some examples, like Joseph, I've seen you, you, I remember there was a time where you started praying with, I think it was the transfiguration. And you were like, this doesn't make sense. Why would Peter ask about building a tent? And I think you stayed with that scripture in your prayer time for like There's so much that months. doesn't make sense in the transfiguration. There's so much and, that does not make sense in the And you're willing to take that before our Lord and pray with only that for months. Mm -hmm. And you've done this with different verses. And so like practically speaking, I know that that is a way where oh, yeah. we can... With the sacrifice of Isaac. So we did a two-part episode on that, Scott. I spent three weeks straight. That was the text I was bringing to prayer. Um, but you had studied it literally for a decade. Well, yeah. Intermittently I mean, before that. Though? Well, uh, me. <laughs> some people. Don't know. <laughs> and and so there there's this willingness to just sit before the Lord with these things, practically speaking. Another thing, practically speaking, is to have to study the Bible with other people. And so be yeah. willing to Can wrestle. We, so you study the Bible in the context of community in several different ways, right? You have students who listen to you. You have peers. You have uh, a small group of people that you're meeting with who are Catholic missionaries. You record a conversation weekly. And you weekly. record a conversation <laughs> weekly with yeah. a friend of yours talking yeah. about the upcoming Sunday readings. Uh, how? Talk a little bit about the importance of community in studying scripture. I think it's actually crucial, and I was, I was wondering in my mind kind of how to get back to a point that I think is pretty fundamental to, and maybe even comes before everything else we've talked about, and that is... And, but I think it's a perfect segue into this. Um, the church, and not just the church, because even Judaism that comes before us, which gave us the entire Old Testament, had always operated this way. There, there's essentially, I like to think of it being um, basically three tiers of how we are to, or, or contexts maybe, through which the scriptures are supposed to find their home. The first and the foremost, and this cannot be overstated, because it, it, it was true in Judaism, it's true now in, in the church, the most proper and true home for the scriptures is the liturgy. These are fundamentally liturgical texts. And, um, and I'm not trying to throw anybody under the bus. I'm, I'm really not. Um, but I, I think there's something to at least the spirit of American Protestantism, which, again, I credit American Protestantism with my coming to know Jesus Christ in a lot of ways. So I'm not, I'm not bashing the family. But 
there is something of this sort of rugged individualism. So at the University of Colorado, where I am, my, my office is right across the street from the university, and there's this underpass, there's this major thoroughfare where students kind of coming back and forth to the neighborhoods and then to campus. And a couple times every year, there are these, God bless them, these Protestant missionaries who are handing out New Testaments to people. And it always makes me cringe a little bit. Not that I'm sad that people are having the scriptures given to them. That's a good thing. But there is a danger in just dropping the scriptures in someone's hands and saying, go for it. I'm not giving you any resources. I'm not giving you any context. I'm not giving you a community in which to explore and wrestle with these things. I'm just saying, go for it. Here you go. Take it easy. I'm never going to see you again. And they're just New Testaments, if that's not bad enough, yeah. that it's there, there's none of the story. And, and again, it's, it's good spirited. And the intention, I, I fully believe, is good and, and a righteous one. But I'll tell you what, most of them just find their way to my desk because students are like, I don't want another Bible. I'll give it to Scott. Yeah. Um, you know, the, but, uh, but, the Chestertonian image of a procession where the Protestant watches a Catholic procession with a crucifix and candles and altar servers and incense and priests and a bishop with a mitre and a crozier and a monstrance with the Eucharist and a Bible. And the Protestant says, I'll take the Bible. <laughs> I'll take that one. And pulls it out of the context in which it had been known yeah. and loved yeah. for yeah. centuries. Yes. Yeah. So that he. Yeah. That was the best. I mean, Chesterton was an artist first and foremost, and he paints pictures with his words. And that was the best picture for understanding where scripture fits that I've it, ever come across. It's absolutely true, and I think what's even more troubling than that is that we, as a Catholic Church, have become that way. And I think whether consciously or unconsciously, we've done the same separation of those two things, which to be quite, to be quite frank with you, there, there's a reason that um, our podcast, the podcast I do with Father Peter, the Word on the Hill with the Linky guys, it is, it's a liturgical reality, not just a Bible study reality. And I'm all for good Bible studies. But if we're going to get this right, I mean, the whole history of the church, and again, the Judaism that precedes it, is that these things are meant to be handed down in the context of the liturgy. And if you miss that, you're going to miss a pretty fundamental context. And as a church, we have done a pretty poor job over the last couple hundred years of bringing those things to life within the liturgy. I mean, every Catholic church originally, you know, at a certain point in time, the stained glass windows were telling a story. The way the church architecture work was telling a story. The proclamation of the scriptures, the homily, all of it was feeding into the grand narrative that is the story of salvation history. And one of the things that really changed, or I, don't, I, don't, I don't know, I don't know how to, how to say this and what hyperbole I'm going to misuse, but when I was kind of, one of the things that's a struggle for an American Catholic like me, who has a bit of a Protestant uh, background, is thinking about how the Bible has a life outside of the physical book. And that's a very Catholic thing to think about, not only because there are many parts of the world that don't have access to a physical Bible, but they have access to the Mass and to the liturgy and the proclamation of these things and homilies about these things. The Bible exists even if we don't have our handy little pocket study Bibles. For about 300 years of the history of the church, if not more, we didn't have physical Bibles. And for the first, you know, few decades, if not almost 100 years, there was no written scriptures in the New Testament. And yet the Bible still exists. The word of God was still present because it was being proclaimed through oral traditions handed down by the apostles, which had just got me to, to realize I, I've been short-sighted sometimes in the way that I think about what 
the the Bible, the scriptures actually are, which are a liturgical reality. And, you know, if there's somebody in the world that can't buy a little Bible on Amazon, the job of the church is to proclaim those scriptures, to tell the story. Because when we lose the story and we just drop Bibles into somebody's hands out of nowhere, you lose the entire narrative. And when you lose the narrative, it's like watching, you know, a, a really intense movie and picking it up like in minute 54. You're like, all right, figure out what happened. Figure out where you are. That doesn't, it doesn't make any yeah. sense. The narrative so, would only be coherent if they said our faith is necessarily predicated on the invention of the printing press. Absolutely. And, and that's a dangerous thing to say, which I think a lot of us think subconsciously, but but it is. is oh yeah, no, I I'm, I'm with you. I, I think that subconsciously all the time, apparently because <laughs> that, that, that rang very true. Shoot. And that kept me up at night for a while. Just yeah. thinking about, huh, what does that say though about the power of the word of God? Not the limitations of text, but the power of the word of God. So it exists in the liturgy. That's tier number one for the church. Then tier number two, the church has always said, okay, now if you really want to, and this comes from Judaism. There was a tradition in Judaism that talked about the Havarim that said, if you really want to take the word of God seriously, studying Torah, then you need to find some other individuals to get together with, to read together, to study, to wrestle, to argue, to yell at each other, to debate, because that's the only way that you can actually get to it. There's a tradition in Judaism that said, um, oh, what did it say? It was something like where two or more people are gathered together to study Torah, um, the, God will make himself present to them, which is an ancient Jewish tradition. So when Jesus shows up and he's like, hey, where two or more are gathered in my name, I'm actually present. People who had studied the scriptures are like, oh, wait a second. We've been saying that for years about studying Torah and you're saying it's actually you. Oh, it's a whole nother light on what the scriptures are. And so the church has always held this kind of tandem idea of, yes, first and foremost, the liturgy. That's the home of the scriptures. But then we're challenged to take it further. And we should study scripture on our own. We should take it to prayer. We should, you know, take our Bible to the chapel and read it. But the Bible is also not meant to be a solitary thing. It's not meant for you to just lock yourself in your room and read the Bible quietly and solitarily and that be that. We're supposed to do that, but then take it back to our Havarim, to our friends, to our small group, to our fellowship, to our families, but to other people that we can say, hey, I was reading the story of Isaac. This does not make sense. This transfiguration thing, what's the deal with the tense? And, you know, well, I think it means this. Well, I don't know if I buy that. And then, you know, you begin to wrestle and try to find out, okay, what's true? What's the reality? What does the church have to say about that? But you can never really get to those questions until you begin the wrestling. So the tears of liturgy, first and foremost individual study and prayer, but then you got to have a group. You have to have fellowship and people, real people that not fake people, but, but no. people that you can have real conversations with, you know, that you can be like, I don't get it. The honesty of studying scripture well, of saying, and there's like an that. overly pietistic way yeah. of studying the Bible in a group where people say, yeah. well, yeah. what's the textbook answer? How can I give yeah. that before somebody else? Right. And then once that's been said, conversation is over and done with. We check the box and we're good. Yeah. And, you know, the other the other thing I just have to say on that note, because this is another place where I really struggle. Um, uh, <laughs> well, maybe maybe I should wait on this, but I because I, it doesn't necessarily apply, but it, it reminded me of something that I'm not great at, that I'm always striving to be better at. That You guys said at the beginning, one of the other things as far as the over piism of piety, I don't know how to make that into an adjective, but. The overly pious study of the Bible, 
one of the things you can see behind me, I've got shelves full of books about the Bible. And how many people who are serious about their faith or who are focused missionaries or former ones like me or teachers of these things, how many of us read a ton about the Bible or read a whole lot about Jesus or about the faith? And how much time then do we spend just reading the Bible? It's like, you know, when I, I, I try to have a, a decent prayer life and I could go into the chapel and I could just always bring my prayer books, which are good. Holy reading is is profoundly important. But if I did nothing but holy reading and I never actually talked to Jesus, I was just talking about him or reading about him, then I'm missing something major. And I'm one of those people that reads a whole lot about the Bible. And more often than not, if I really come to something that really bugs me or I really don't get, sometimes I'll put aside all the commentaries and all the other stuff and, you know, what does Scott Hahn have to say and what does, you know, Stanley R. say, you know, and say, I'm just going to take it to the chapel and I'm just going to read it over and over and over again, which is really hard for me to do. But that's where we begin to see, oh, oh, the actual word of God does have power. And we can read around it a lot in this kind of overly uh, pietistic way. But there's no substitute for actually just being in the scriptures, which is what the liturgy does, which is why we Catholics kind of have a leg up on this than anybody else. Because every time we go to mass, we are fully immersed in the word of God. And, and like, and the word of God immerses himself in us, right? Like we have the true presence. That's another reason why going and wrestling with the scriptures, especially in a church or in an adoration chapel is so powerful is because now it's not just having that conversation, even within the context of your family or your your small group, it's having the conversation with, with the author himself, which is so powerful. Hey, you up there. I don't get you in here. Yeah. Can you up there explain you here to yeah. me? Yeah, help me out. <laughs> it gets okay. a little crazy. But then the duty is then to have that conversation with the word himself and then take that conversation back to our friends, back yes. to our family, back to our Havarim. Say, oh, man, I was in prayer and I was I was really hearing this thing. Yeah. Okay. Real quick. The three tiers. Yeah. So you. Liturgy. Liturgy. Individual say, study. Individual study, study. Group study. Okay. In which yeah. order? Say it. I don't know. Well, liturgy's well, first. Liturgy's I'm first. Not, I'm not totally convinced there's a proper order for the individual and group study. They but might they're... be co-equal. I don't know. I don't think there's any teaching that I'm being heretical on. I mean, I'm, I'm prone to thinking, you know, you read it yourself. Whenever I do my study with focus team and stuff, I was like, hey, read this. And then let's come back together and, and talk about it. Because mm-hmm. I think it just works better that way. But I'm not sure there's one that takes priority over the other. And I almost wonder what that, if a little bit depends on the group, you know, like I'm Probably. studying the Bible with a group of ladies right now and none of them have ever studied the Bible ever before. So they need to do it in the group first so that they know what to do when they go off Maybe. on their own. There's also something to be said with said though about reading something, engaging with something and being really confused by it and mm-hmm. being like, I don't, because that's a better conversation when you can go and be like, wow, I did kind of try to engage with this and I couldn't do it. And I was really bothered by this and I couldn't figure this out. That, I find, actually brings about more fruitful conversation once you already have a content to struggle with. That's, I... Again, there's an argument both ways. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. this is why I like you. I like to proceed with the (laughs) things I don't know. It's super vulnerable to begin that way, FYI. Yeah. To start a discussion with, here's what I don't know, guys. Here's what I am bothered by, and it's God who's bothering me, which means that there's something going on inside of me that I am letting you guys see. That's yeah. a that's a vulnerable place to be, and you do that with Father Peter every week, and you record it no less. <laughs> yeah, I know. 
Yeah. We make a point. I mean, our rule is that we cannot discuss the stuff that we've kind of come to or struggled with before we hit record because we want to actually share with people that experience of, but yeah, sometimes it's uh, it's really risky. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you never know what's going to come out. Yeah. That's real. Well, speaking of, I'm not sure there's not a good segue, but we want to honor your time. <laughs> and so if you want to tell our audience one more time where they can hear you actually doing this weekly, and then I can close us up in prayer. Yeah, absolutely. So again, I uh, do, we do a weekly podcast every single week. Um, Father Peter Musset, who's the, the pastor and the campus director, the, the director of university ministry here at St. Thomas Aquinas in Boulder. Um, it's called The Word on the Hill. We are called The Lanky Guys, although as the years go on, we're getting less lanky. Um, but you can find us on iTunes. You can find us at lankyguys.org. Um, and yeah, every week and what we do, we take all four of the readings from the Sunday mass. So for the old Testament, second reading, the Psalm, the responsorial, oh, sorry, old Testament, responsorial Psalm, second reading gospel. And we try to figure out, okay, what's the common thread? What's going on behind the scenes? What's the background and what ties them all together? And our part of why I brought this up earlier is our, one of our largest demographics of listeners are priests and they don't always admit it, but, um, you know, I think a lot of our priests need need help with what to do. You know, a lot of our seminaries over well, the, the years didn't do the best job of handing this stuff on. And so if I can give a 45-minute crash course in four of these readings for our priests to then say, okay, I can formulate a homily because I've been given the background. I've been given the big picture. Cool. I can I can do something with that because their time is – they can't take an online class and all these things and – if I can, if Father Peter and I can provide some semblance of that so that they can give better homilies so that their congregations can hear the word of God in the liturgy and then go do something about it, then that seems like the best place for us to spend our time. Beautiful. I love that. Go I ahead. also wonder if a lot of priests are just really longing for community themselves. Probably. How many of them would rather just call in and have, you know, 10,000 priests calling in trying to talk with you and Father Peter? Oh boy, you need a you need <laughs> quite the Zoom account for that. That's a different podcast. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we are so grateful for your time. This has been a pleasure. Yeah. Uh, Crystal's going to pray us out, and you have I'm to run to, to a class. Yeah, yeah. I'm teaching so, a New Testament class in just a little bit. Okay. Awesome. All right. What about that? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this conversation. Um, thank you for Dr. Scott sharing his time and his thoughts with us um, and with our listeners. Um, and I am just feeling called right now to lift up in prayer, all of, especially those priests that um, have the opportunity to share your good news and inspire um, your people, Lord, to come to know you better through your word in the liturgy. And I just pray for our listeners as well, that they would be even more attentive than they already are to, to your word also. We ask all this in your holy name. Amen. Amen. Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you so much, Scott. Thank you, guys. Take my hand let's be on our way. And now, finally, I can say that I love you. Yes, I love you. From our outpost to yours, thanks for listening. And a special thanks to John Mark Skoke. That's S-K-O-C-H. For the music. Check him out on Spotify. 